The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Revelation 12, 7 through 17. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times, in half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well then, that's Bible, that's not Lord of the Rings, or Game of Thrones or whatever. I'm really excited. If you got a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 12. If we have not met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really, really excited for what the Lord has for us tonight. Um, uh, before we get started, our, our ministry team was out of town this week. Uh, if you're not aware, uh, we as a church are a part of a group of churches or a network of churches called the Harbor Network. And the Harbor Network exists to launch, lead, and multiply thriving churches. And so Citizens Church is one church out of about 100 across the country that are partnering together to see more churches planted, to see God's kingdom advanced across the world. And I say all that for two reasons. One uh, is the whole theme of the, the conference this week was around the idea of conviction and imagination. And our team was just so blessed, and I feel like the Spirit is really stirring something in our team as we kind of look ahead to 2023. And so I just ask that you pray for us, pray for the leaders of this church, pray for those who lead different ministries, uh, that God would give us a vision for what he has for our church uh, next year. The second reason is that uh, just to encourage you that when you give to the mission of this church, uh, it doesn't just go to see God's kingdom advance in Charlotte, but to see God's kingdom advance across uh, our country and across our world. And so I just wanted you to know that's a little behind the scenes of, of what we're about. Uh, but also to say is that going into the conference on Tuesday, I thought it'd be a great idea to go, uh, let's redo the whole sermon while I'm out of town all week, and let's do Revelation, and let's talk about spiritual warfare. And so here we are today, so, so excited and so aware, like every week we need the Holy Spirit. Amen. He's here among us. Do you believe that? Do you believe the reality of the scriptures that when it says when two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, there he is present with them. So the Lord is here. So let's pray and ask him to open our hearts. God, we love you. We need you. 
Lord, the book of Revelation, Revelation 12 is so beautiful and so powerful, Lord. And so I pray that as we look at your scripture, the God, that you would convict our hearts, you'd shape our imaginations, give us eyes to see your kingdom realities. We need you desperately. We love you. Lead us away from distraction. Lead us away from cynicism and lead us into hope. Joy. Love. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, a few months ago, Jenny Allen, who I know that many of you are familiar with, she's a writer, a speaker, she's kind of most well-known for founding uh, the IF Gathering. She had the opportunity to interview sort of the leader of the Iranian house church movement. And if you're not familiar with what the Spirit of God is doing in Iran, it will absolutely blow your mind. So in Iran, it is one of the single most dangerous places to be a Christian right now. People are literally killed for professing faith faith in Christ. And at the same time, it is also the number one fastest growing nation for Christianity in the entire globe. This Christianity is just booming. The Spirit of God is moving in incredible ways. And so she was interviewing uh, sort of the head of this whole house church movement. And of course, they had to kind of obscure his name and his voice and all of that. But as she was talking about, hey, what do you notice the difference between church in the Middle East and church in the West? And what he said, as I was thinking about this sermon in Revelation 12, stuck out to me so strongly. When he was describing the Western church, this is what he said. He said, it's like the church in the West is under some sort of satanic lullaby. It's like the church in the West, the church that you and I all live in and are a part of, that I am passionate about leading and being a part of for years and years to come. He says, it's like it's under some sort of satanic lullaby. And here's what he means. His argument is that the church, broadly speaking, here in America and other parts of the Western world, is asleep to the realities of what's taking place on a cosmic and spiritual level all around us. To the realities that there is a battle going on and has been for ages between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And he calls it satanic because it's like every time in the West we try to wake up to this reality, Satan just says, shh, go back to sleep. It's okay. Nothing to see here. Pay no attention to the proverbial man behind the curtain. Because his argument is that if we would wake up to the realities of the very real enemy and enemies in a very real spiritual war, he says that it would do things we could not even imagine for the flourishing not only of our faith, but for our communities and our neighborhoods and our cities and our nation. He goes on in the interview to just lay out some of what this might look like. He says, if you could understand that your inability to wake up early to be with God is not simply the fact that you're not a morning person, but is a very real spiritual war. If you could have eyes to see that your depression and anxiety is not just chemical imbalances or a stressful workplace environment or social media comparison, but a very real spiritual war. 
You can wrap your mind around the fact that you have crip- the crippling fear you have to talk to your coworker about the gospel is not simply you being shy or having social anxiety, but is in fact a very real spiritual war. If you could get that the constant fighting with your spouse is not simply a result of your stressful life or kids, but is a very real spiritual war. If you could understand the fact that when you step into the gathering and it's like something wants to block your heart and your voice from projecting is not simply the fact that you don't like to sing but is a very real spiritual war. He says you would see flourishing like you can't even imagine in your faith and life with God. But if the devil can just keep us asleep, keep us focused on only what's right in front of us, only what's here and now in the world, then we will remain lifeless, cold, and unable to see any kingdom progress in our lives or in the world. So the invitation for us as followers of Jesus is to learn to do what Jesus did. And here, as we talk about it tonight, is this. I want to talk about the practice of engaging in spiritual warfare. What does it look like to follow after the pattern and life of Jesus who steps into the world pushing back the kingdom of darkness through saying no to sin and temptation, through preaching and teaching the gospel, through putting the gospel on display, through miraculous works and deeds, all of the above and then some. I want to invite us into realizing there's a war and inviting us to fight it, inviting us to do what I sing to my two-year-old every night before she goes to sleep, that we are in fact in the Lord's army. It's a very weird song to sing to a two-year-old. So here's my goal. Here's where I want us to go from Revelation 12. I want to just show us this cosmic war, show you what is happening according to the scriptures throughout time, show us specific ways this will show up in our lives, and then just end real briefly with talking about our hope in the midst of all of this. So to do that, let's go to Revelation chapter 12. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, most of the book is a literary genre in the Bible called apocalyptic literature. Now, when you hear apocalypse, don't immediately think end of the world sci-fi film. Apocalypse in the Bible, or apocalyptic literature, is a moment where God pulls back the curtain and shows an individual what is happening from a divine perspective, and then gives them a message out of that divine perspective to encourage or challenge the people of God. That's exactly what's taking place in the book of Revelation. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, is given this vision from God. And part of that vision is for the future, where he's looking ahead to what Christians call the end times, this moment in the future where Jesus will return and usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. But there's also parts of the book where John looks back. God gives him a vision for what has taken place, and that's what's happening in Revelation chapter 12. God is peeling back the curtain for John, showing him a divine perspective on a cosmic battle that has been taking place throughout history between two kingdoms, kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And this cosmic battle, according to Revelation 12, has four scenes or four acts. We'll hit them quickly. Act number one, in this cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness is Satan versus God. Satan versus God. If you're new, welcome. So glad you're here. Let's look at verse seven together. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him." 
So in Revelation chapter 12, John's going to give us two images, a woman who we're going to look at in just a second, and this dragon who the text says is Satan. Now just so we're all on the same page, Satan, or the devil, as it's translated in Greek, is shown in the scriptures as the chief enemy of God. And according to Isaiah chapter 14, Satan is originally an angel, a being created by God to worship God and honor God and love God and serve God, but he doesn't like that position. He's just frustrated, he's upset, he doesn't want God to have the position of glory, and so Satan leads this giant attack with a bunch of other angels that he recruits to basically have a coup against God so that he can take the throne and be over the entire universe. And that's what John's describing here in Revelation chapter 12. So Michael and the angels, Michael's one of the archangels, fights against the dragon and his fallen angels, and obviously God wins like always, Satan loses, and in response to this rebellion, God banishes Satan down to earth. It's really fun. If you want the 2022 translation of that uh, thrown out, it means he literally bounced. So it's kind of like Satan, you got to get to step in, in my <laughs> translation. That was a bad joke. I'm really sorry. Um, it's revelation. I got to have something. God sends him down to earth where he now, according to God's sovereign plan, has some amount of authority and to rule and reign over the earth for a season. We see this throughout the scriptures. So in John chapter 12, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls him the God of this age. Or in Ephesians 2, he refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. This is what we read in verse 12. Skip down a few verses. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So John here says that earth becomes Satan's kind of little kingdom to rule over with, quote, great wrath, or it can be translated passion or fury. The devil is angry. He's now ruling over the earth angrily. Why? Because the text says he knows his time is short. If you want to underline, highlight that, we'll come back to it. It's immensely important for this text. So that's act one. Satan fighting against God, wanting to be like God. He loses. He is sent to earth, but he doesn't quit. So now, if he can't go directly after God, he then turns his attention to God's people. And that leads us to Act chapter 2, Satan versus Israel. Satan versus Israel. Pick it up in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. All right, there's two things going on here with this woman in Revelation chapter 12, two pictures John is trying to paint. So the most obvious one is that it's a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who is impregnated by the Holy Spirit, who gives birth to the Messiah. And we know in history, Matthew chapter 2, Satan pursues that woman. He pursues Mary. In Matthew 2, it says that Satan stirs the heart of Herod to kill every boy under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem. He's trying to literally wipe out the Messiah. But this picture of the woman in Revelation 12 is not just Mary. It's actually bigger than Mary. And to understand that, we have to go back a few verses to see how the woman is described in verse 1 and 6. This is what John says. So a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. 
This is a symbol. One of the keys to reading Revelation is to look out for symbols that point to other places in Scripture. And here, John has a symbol pointing back to Genesis chapter 37, where Jacob is described as the moon, and his wife Rachel as the sun, and their 12 sons, Joshua and his brothers, as the 12 stars of the sky. These same 12 brothers who become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Hold that thought. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So this picture of a woman with 12 stars in her crown who gives birth to a child who rules the nations with an iron scepter is who? It's Israel. The nation who comes from the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 stars of the sky. The one who, according to Isaiah chapter 27, gives birth to a son who will fight a dragon. Do you love the Bible? So notice what this means for Acts chapter 2. Satan goes after God, Acts chapter 1. I want the throne. I want God's glory. I want to rule. I want to get rid of God and his glory, right? He, obviously, God wins. He casts him down to earth. So he goes after God's people, the Israelites, which is put on display prominently if you read through the Old Testament. The Israelites are constantly under turmoil and attack. Time and time again, enemy nations, the text says, that the hearts of enemy wicked kings are stirred by Satan to overthrow and destroy and attack God's people. Time and time again, if they're tempted from the inside out, they want to rebel against God. They want to make false idols. They constantly want to run from the one true God to create false gods. Satan wants to destroy God's people. But the text says for a specific reason. It's actually not because of Israel. It's because of the son who is going to come through Israel. Look back at the text, verse 4. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What does that sound like? Genesis 3.15, right? During the curse of sin, where God is telling Adam and Eve what's going to happen because sin has entered the world. What does he say? That there will be enmity, division, fighting, strife, hatred between the offspring of Eve and between the serpent. The dragon wants to crush Israel because the dragon wants to crush the child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, which leads us to Act chapter 3. Act 3, Satan versus Jesus. So he goes after God, loses, goes after Israel, can't stop the prophecy from coming true, can't stop Jesus from taking on flesh, entering into the world. So now he tries with all his might to go after the Messiah. He hates the arrival of Jesus on the earth. Why is that? Because, as we said week after week after week in this series, when Jesus shows up to earth, what does he show up bringing? The kingdom of God. And remember verse 12, Satan knows that his time is short. He knows that his reign as the prince and power of the world won't last forever. He knows that God will reign and his kingdom will reign over all and through all and in all. So when Jesus arrives on earth, ushering in the kingdom of God, the, the devil knows his time is ticking and the head crushing that is reserved for him is coming soon. And he hates it. In just a few weeks, we're going to enter into one of my favorite church seasons, the season of Advent. We all in America call it Christmas. It's the season collectively as the global church that we set aside and we look forward and we remember that Christ took on flesh, that he became incarnate, entered into the world. And if there was one word I could use to describe Advent, it would be this, cozy, right? 
Like, just think about it. Everything about Advent is hard because it's 81 degrees. This would work better if it was, like, Thursday. But it's cozy, right? There's hot chocolate, and there's carols, and there's candles, and there's fireplaces, and it's just all the fun of that season. But here's the deal. Let Revelation 12 challenge you. Advent is not cozy. The arrival of Jesus is not quaint or cute. It's a declaration of war. I love the way Pastor Eugene Peterson put it when he said this. He says, it is John's spirit-appointed task in Revelation to supplement the work of Matthew and Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness nor domesticated into worldliness. This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. That's Advent. That's what's taking place when Jesus arrives on earth. The devil hates the arrival of Jesus because the arrival of Jesus declares your kingdom is over and the kingdom of God is at hand. So he hates it, and he wants to destroy it. This is why the first thing the devil does in Matthew 4, right? Jesus is uh, baptized. He comes up out of the water. God declares over him, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And where does he go immediately? To the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He says, hey, I'm gonna, if I can't stop your birth, then I'm going to stop your reign. I'm going to stop your rule. I'm going to convince you that my way is better. Give up the redemptive plan of God. This is why as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's like every time Jesus does anything for the kingdom, preaching, teaching, healing, the next scene is he's facing face-to-face with a a demon. Because Jesus arriving to earth is a declaration of War. Jesus is taking ground on what is rightfully his. He's declaring ownership over what is ultimately and rightfully God's. Until we reach this moment on a hill called Golgotha, and a cross designed for a murderer is taken by the Savior, and the son dies, and the devil actually thinks he's won. But even when it finally seems like Satan gets what he wants, the death of the Son, the death of the Messiah, King Jesus, even in death is the ultimate victory for the kingdom of God. Even in death, Jesus declares, you cannot stop God's kingdom. Because Jesus dies, but if you know the story, you know what happens, right? He doesn't stay dead. He literally defeats death, declaring even this, the worst of it from Satan, cannot hold me. The grave cannot hold him. He gets up out of the grave. He ascends to rule and reign from the right hand of God. And Paul says it this way in Colossians 2. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. In a cosmic reversal that is hard to fathom and comprehend, Jesus' death puts death to death. Do you notice that? Even in his death... He destroys Satan's plans. So, having lost to Michael and the angels, having failed to destroy the Israelites, having been unable to stop the Messiah King Jesus, I want you to notice the dragon's last attempt against the kingdom of God. It's in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Can't stop the Israelites. He can't stop the Messiah. So where does he turn? Those who hold the testimony of Jesus, a.k.a. the church. And that's act four. Satan versus the church. 
Satan versus the church. This is why this whole thing matters for you here and now. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, according to the scriptures, the devil has gone to make war with you. Because he can no longer go after Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God the Father, risen and ruling and reigning. The text says he will go after and make war on those who follow Jesus, on the church. Isn't this the language of 1 Peter 5? right? Where it says about the devil, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants Christ, and so I have bad news for you, he goes after you. Why? Because it's the age-old thing. He's always wanted to take glory from God, and where is God now glorified? In the church, through Christ in the church. And so what does he do now that he can't go after God? What does he do? He goes after God's people. He wants the same thing he's wanted from the very beginning, to take God's glory from him. So here and now in this already but not yet, where the kingdom of God is at hand but not in its fullness, like it will be on the day when Christ returns, we live as the people of God, as the church, in the middle of a cosmic war that we know is going to end with Jesus winning, but is not there yet. What does that actually mean? What does it actually mean for me to tell you the devil has gone off to make war against the church? You're like, that either sounds scary, or I don't believe you. Like, to show me more what is happening. Let me just show you a little bit more from Revelation chapter 12 to briefly from the text explain what I think it means that the devil makes war on us. We're going to get really practical here in a second. There's two main ways Satan makes war on followers of Jesus described in this passage. The first is accusation. First way that the devil makes war against those who hold to the testimony of Jesus against the church is accusation. This is Revelation 12, 10. It says, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Accusation is the full frontal attack of our enemy. The devil works against you by making war via accusations. And here's how it works. Sometimes those accusations are against you. Sometimes the devil works to accuse you. He accuses you of something and he works overtime to get you to agree with the accusation because if he can get you to agree with his accusation, then he can take you out of the fight. And in my experience, both as a Christian and as a pastor, these accusations are often rooted in one of two things, suffering or sin. They often come from suffering or sin. What happens is we walk through some thing in our past where a wound was created, either because of something we did or because of something done to us. And the devil, as like a skilled surgeon, just kind of cuts it open and goes, that's the place of the lie. So here's what it sounds like. Sounds like I can't be used by God in powerful ways because my past is too broken. Or maybe it sounds like I can't connect with God through prayer in his scriptures. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough knowledge. I don't know enough theology. I don't have a good attention span. It sounds like I can't share the gospel with my neighbor. I'm just not good with people. I can't answer all their theological arguments. People just don't like me. Listen to me, church. Those are accusations the devil has thrown at you and convinced you to believe to take you out of the fight. Because he knows that if you were to wake up, and he knows if you were to combat them with the truth of the gospel, and he knows if you were to believe what is actually true in your identity in Jesus, and you were to actually say, no, you know what? I can engage with the Lord in deep, powerful ways in my time with him through Bible and prayer. If you were to wake up and go, no, there are people in my neighborhood that maybe Jesus will save by the power of his spirit through my testimony. 
If you were to wake up and go, you know what? I can be used powerfully by God. I am not too broken. My past is not too dark. It is not too difficult to be forgiven. You know what's going to happen? The kingdom of God moves in power. It moves mightily. But the devil looks at us and goes, shh, no, you can't. Remember that thing that happened? Remember that lie you've been telling yourself for the last 10 years? Five years? Remember that thing that your dad said to you? Your mom said to you? Your friend said to you? Shh, it's not me, it's them. Just believe it. You can't be used by God. That's the first way. Second way is accusations against others. First is that he gets you to believe lies about yourself. The second is he gets you to believe lies against others. John 13, 35, Jesus says what I think is one of his most powerful lines. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says one of the primary ways we put the gospel on display is our unity is us learning to be the family of God. One of the chief ways, track with me here, one of the chief ways God gets the glory in our lives individually and collectively is how we learn to be family with one another. How we sacrifice for one another, how we believe the best in one another, how we love one another, how we serve one another, how we care for one another when the bottom drops out of our lives. And so, of course, if the devil from the very beginning has been after the glory of God, what is he going to do but crush unity, which puts God's glory on display? You tracking with that? What is he going to do but that? Okay, unity, this Christians loving each other, is giving God a lot of glory. How do I stop God from getting glory? Oh, yeah, I'm just going to have them accuse one another of stuff that's not true. Oh, yeah, they don't really love you. They're not really for your good, are they? Uh, you know how they like, didn't really laugh at that thing you said? Yeah, that's because they don't like you. Oh, those Christians? Ooh, stay away from those people. You've heard the stories. It's accusations. It's lies. It's warfare. And we think it's just relational drama and tension. It's not. It's warfare. It's lies. It's deceit. It's accusations from the devil. I need you to hear me on this, and I need you to listen to me a little bit on this. Some of you right now are believing accusations from the devil that people don't love you and people don't care about you and people aren't for you in Christian circles because somebody one time six months or a year ago said one offhanded comment. They made that one joke they probably shouldn't have made or they made that one snide remark at the party or they said that one thing to you the first time you ever showed up to a small group Bible study and now all of a sudden you're out on the whole Jesus thing, you're out on the whole community thing, you're out on the whole church thing because the devil has let you and caused you to believe an accusation that simply is not true. And God is not getting the glory in your life. Why? Because you've given up on one of the primary ways he gets the glory in your life, namely learning to love and serve and sacrifice for other people. Let me push it even farther. This is not in the notes. This is free. Some of you guys, for the last however long you want to put on it to make sense in your story, have hopped from church to church to church to church. You've gone here for six months, here for a few months, here for a couple of years, here for a few months, and you've never actually taken a step to commit. 
You've never actually said, you know what, I'm going to be all in here. And the reason why you refuse to do that is because there are accusations against the church from the devil that say, hey, don't get all in. Keep people at arm's bay. Don't fully commit. They're going to hurt you. They're going to betray you. They're going to mess your life up. They're not going to love you or serve you like they promised. And listen to me, that is accusations and lies from the devil that are keeping you from glorifying God as he calls you to glorify him. And you don't even have to commit here. This is not a plug for like, so be all in here. I don't care. Plug in somewhere. Be a part of the church somewhere in a local expression because you're saying I can be a Christian apart from a local church expression is not biblical. It is a lie from the devil and an accusation against the kingdom of God. So commit somewhere. But there's another way the devil works, not just through accusation, but through deceit. Everybody doing all right? We good? I got a little bit more. Sorry. Deceit. Revelation 12, 9 says this, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus would call him in John 11, the father of lies, whose native tongue is lying. Just his native language. What, is, what does the devil speak? What's his native tongue? It's just lying, just lies, it's deceit. And he deceives scripturally through two primary ways. The first is through false doctrine. False doctrine. He would love nothing more than for you to believe wrong things about the Bible. The devil would love nothing more than for you to start going against historic Christian orthodoxy, to start rewriting scripture away from faithfulness to God and towards an ethic that fits what you already want to think and live and do. This is all over the place right now. This is TikTok. It is Twitter. It's all over the place. And the devil's been doing this for ages. He's been asking this age-old question all the way from Genesis chapter 3. What does he show up to the Eve and ask? Did God actually say? It's not the same question he asks us. Hey, I know you're reading this from the scriptures, and I know your life is here, and the scriptures are here, but like, did God actually say? Are you sure? You actually want to follow that? You actually want to go that way? How do you even know you can trust the original manuscripts? That one's huge right now in TikTok theology. I don't know. I'm not on TikTok, but I've been told. You sure you can trust the Bible? Let's just cut it there. Let alone God, the author of the scriptures, let alone your interpretation of the scriptures. Are you sure God actually said that? Are you sure he's actually calling you to that? Doesn't that seem a little bit outdated? Doesn't that seem a little bit repressive? Doesn't that seem a little bit off and unloving? That doesn't seem like the God I know or I want to know. This is age old, even in modern day America-ish. Thomas Jefferson, early 1800s. It's a famous story where in his 70s, Thomas Jefferson finally got fed up. He was trying to pair the Bible with his life, and rather than changing his life, in his late 70s, he finally said, you know what, I just am going to give up on the Bible. And so he literally took a Bible and cut out parts of the New Testament that he didn't like and mashed it together. And as the story goes, when he was done, he had about a third of the New Testament left. And he said, this is the parts that I like. This is what I'm going to keep. And he actually released it as the Jefferson Bible. And here's the deal. We don't physically take the Bible anymore and cut pages out most of the time because we read it on our phones, and that would be hard to do. But we do the exact same thing, do we not? I like these parts of Jesus that square with my worldview that I already have. I like these parts of Jesus that correspond with the life I already want to live. I like these parts of Jesus that just so happen to agree with everything I already think. I need you to hear me on this. If your view of God always agrees with you, if your view of God always agrees with you and your preferred beliefs or your ethic or your way of living, you are not worshiping God. You're actually worshiping yourself. And you've made him into a figment of your imagination and called him God when really it's just you. 
It's what you've already wanted. It's what you've already thought. It's what you've already desired. And you know who doesn't get the glory when you shrink down God to just be a reimagined you? God. This is Tim Keller. You can be mad at him, not me. He says this. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. If you have a God who never disagrees with you, cannot have a relationship with him as he calls you to have, and he cannot get the glory in your life. And Satan would want nothing more than to deceive you so that God does not get the glory in your life. That's the first way. The second one is false loves. It's not just false doctrine. There's another layer to it. It's false loves. One of the ways that the devil deceives is not just in our minds, but in our hearts. Having us read things like Psalm 1611, which says, In God's presence there is fullness of joy, and at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he would have us read, okay, at God's right hand are joy and pleasures forever, and go, eh, maybe not. Kind of. Yes, and... But if only I had, or could I add this to it? One of the chief deceptions of the devil is to convince you that Jesus is great enough to save you, but not great enough to satisfy you. Listen to me on that. One of the greatest deceptions of the devil would to say, yeah, Jesus is great enough to save you. Yeah, since he can deal with all that, but he's not great enough to satisfy the longings of your soul, is he? And he calls after our loves. And listen, if he can deceive you into thinking Jesus doesn't satisfy, that takes away, like everything else, glory due to God. Why? Because in the famous words of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And a Jesus who becomes our satisfaction is a Jesus who gets our schedule and our time and our resources and our loves and our worship, who gets the glory from our lives. This is what's so drawing about the Christian faith and what's so difficult about the Christian faith at the same time is because we get glimpses of that, do we not? When we're in worship and that song and that bridge and it's like something within us just says, man, if I could sit in this moment forever, that would be enough. We're up early in the morning with just us and the scriptures and the spirit and we're reading and it's like we just can't do anything else but sit in the presence of God. We're around that fire in the fall, like we're going to do on Tuesday night as the guys in my group, and we're talking about Jesus, and there's those moments where you go, man, is this not heaven on earth? And there's something within our hearts that would call us out of that reality back to, yeah, but what else do I need? Yeah, but what about that thing? Yeah, but what about that, what my neighbor's got? Yeah, what about what my friends got? Yeah, what about that other thing? What about that new career? What about that new city? What about that new friend group? What about, what about, what about, what about, what about? It's lies. It's war. It's not just marketing and capitalism. Some of that. But it's war. That thing that would say, yeah, it's not enough to just have Jesus. It's war. So what do we do? 
What do we do? We have the accuser, the deceiver, going after those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. What hope is there for us? Let me just end real quick with this. The key practice for us this week is going to be prayer. Ephesians 6 outlines how to pray into spiritual warfare to push back the kingdom of darkness in our lives and the lives of others. You can look at that, citizenscharlotte.com. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about hope. Revelation 12, 10. You should check out the practice. It's very good. That's just not where I want to end. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them." How do we fight against our enemy, the deceiver, the accuser? What does the text say? They overcame how? By the blood of the lamb. I love Romans 8 for this. Paul says, you are more than conquerors. He says, over the powers of evil, over the powers of sin, over the powers of death, you are more than conquerors. How? Not through willpower, not through a really good rule of life and Sabbath practices, not through really good church attendance, not through thinking the right things, not through a Christian track record. He says, you are more than conquerors. How? By him who loves us. By Christ. How do we overcome the enemy who has been going after the glory of God for ages, who has chased down the Messiah and lost, who is now chasing down all who hold to the testimony of Jesus? How do we overcome the enemy? By worshiping and looking to and loving the one who has already overcome him. The one who has already won the war. The one who has already guaranteed the future. The one who stepped into the middle of the chaos of darkness and death, and yet through death overcame death. Defeated Satan and sin. Defeated the one who would come after us. So when the enemy would accuse us, and say things like, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not gifted enough, you're not holy enough, think about your past, we look to the blood of the Lamb, which washes us clean and makes us right with God. When the enemy would accuse others around us and say, they're not going to love you, they're not going to care about you, they're going to betray you, they're going to hurt you, remember that last guy, remember how he hurt you, remember that last girl, remember how she, she hurt you, when he accuses others, we look to the blood of the Lamb who reconciles us and makes us family and gives us the ability to forgive. When the enemy would deceive us, God can't satisfy your soul. He's not good. He's not kind. He's not caring. He's not for you. We look to the blood of the lamb, which shouts across history of the goodness and grace and mercy of God. How do we conquer? How do we step into spiritual warfare? How do we overcome? We overcome by the blood of the spotless lamb who overcame for us and defeated Satan's sin and death. That's the good news of the gospel. That this war that you are now a part of, this already but not yet, as kingdoms are waging against each other, has a guaranteed victory that is not the devil's and will not be the devil's. His head will be crushed. Do you love the Bible? His head will be crushed, and our king, King Jesus, will reign forever because of his blood shed on the cross risen, ruling, and reigning king. So here's what I want to do. It's going to be a little bit different. Uh, It's going to be the same, but I want us to do it in a new way. We're going to take communion like we always do. But here's going to be my invitation for us tonight. This is a chance for us to, to celebrate communion together. 
And what we're going to do is in taking communion, we're going to take the body and blood of Jesus. But as we take it, here's how I want us to think about it. I want us to think about in light of Revelation 12 and in light of what Romans 8 tells us, that he is the one who conquered, that we overcome, that we conquer through the blood of the lamb. I want us to take communion together as an act of warfare. Which is going to sound a little strange. You're like, this is this? Yes. As an act of warfare, as we take the body and blood of Christ, as we take communion together, I want us to do so as a posture that says the grave could not hold Jesus, the devil could not stop him, and so he cannot stop the people of God as we move forward in power. That our enemy has been defeated and will ultimately face the crushing of his head. So take this as an act of defiance. Take this as an act of saying, no, I will not believe the accusations. I will not believe the deception. I will not believe the lies anymore. So rather than take communion all together like we have been, I'm just going to give us some space. Austin's going to play behind to just give you space with the Lord to ask, Lord, what are the accusations and the deceits I'm believing? What are the lies that the devil is speaking over me or over others? How is he getting in the way of me glorifying you? I just want to give you a minute or two to have some space to pray and then to take communion as an act of defiance against our enemy and an act of declaration that Jesus on the cross has won and has claimed the victory. So take a minute and pray, take communion, and then I'll lead us to the next part. fight against the enemy by our own strength. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't do this on our own accord, Lord. We stand behind the risen and ruling Savior. We stand behind the one who has conquered death. We stand behind the one who went to the grave, to death, to defeat death. And we plead Christ. Lord, against every accusation of the devil, we plead Christ. Lord, against every lie that would tear us from relationship with one another, we plead Christ. Lord, against every deceit that would have us believe things about you that are not true, we plead Christ. Lord, against every false love that would call after the affections of our hearts, we plead Christ. Lord, we don't fight afraid. We don't fight wondering, we don't fight uncertain. We fight confident, knowing that the kingdom of God is advancing and the kingdom of darkness has a time that is ending. And one day, that incredible, glorious day, Christ will return in all his glory, crush the head of the serpent, and your kingdom that we experience now in part will be in full get to worship you forever and that's a guarantee it's a sure thing so until that day lord help us to fight help us to fight as you've called us to fight that we would overcome by the blood of the lamb because we love not our lives even unto death but we give everything for you we love you we need you probably sings in christ's name amen